I, I see I see them as being so tightly connected that I, I, I really think it would be hard to fully understand the emergence and the persistence of American capitalism without looking at slavery. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today on the program, we're going to be talking to one of my University of Virginia colleagues, Justine Hill Edwards. Justine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Justine Hill Edwards is Assistant Professor of History, specializing in African American history and the history of slavery. This conversation will kind of be in two parts. First, we'll talk to Dr. Hill Edwards about a little bit of her research, uh, and then we'll talk more broadly about the relationship between slavery and capitalism in history and how the thinking on this subject has evolved uh, over the decades. Justine uh, says here on the piece of paper you gave me, you're finishing up a book project entitled Black Markets, Slave Economics and Capitalist Enterprise in South Carolina with Columbia University Press. Congratulations on that monograph coming out in in the foreseeable future. I'm excited. I want to start by asking you to tell us about the project. Tell us what you're trying to do in this project sort of the cases you're looking at and how it fits in this larger picture of the history of uh, slavery and capitalism in the U.S. So this book I'm really excited about. I'm in the process of finishing. It was the focus of my Ph.D. research, and it's been about 10 years in the making. Um, And I look at what are called slave economies, and so the independent economies of slaves, of enslaved people. And I looked specifically at South Carolina, um, I'm interested in South Carolina for a variety of reasons, and it has a lot to do with the connections that I see between slave economies and capitalism. Um, South Carolina was founded in 1670 as the first slave colony in British mainland North America. And so at its foundation, at its very core, was slavery. And slavery not just as a set of social relations, but slavery as the foundation of South Carolina's economy. And so I see the ways in which, and I look at the ways in which um, slaves used the kind of freedom, well, not freedom really, but the autonomy that they had to do things like make money for themselves, to hire out their time, to get compensation for their labor, to trade on their own, to trade with other slaves, with free blacks, with poor whites, and even trade with their enslavers. And so I see this connection in the book between the the ways in which slaves engaged in these types of economic activities and the ways in which um, slaveholders increasingly began to invest uh, vast amounts of capital in slavery as an enterprise. It's fascinating that you said that South Carolina, particularly as a, as a state or region of the U.S., is sort of uniquely shaped by uh, the institution of slavery from its very origins. And it kind of figures prominently in the historiography of environment uh, in the U.S. and the Atlantic world. I'm thinking particularly uh, of the book Black Rice by Judith Carney, which kind of emphasizes how the uh, plantation economy of rice uh, was built on sort of expertise that enslaved people had brought with them uh, from Africa and that was like deliberately instrumentalized by slaveholders and landowners. So... Yeah, tell us more about, since this is an environmental history-focused conversation, tell us more about how the story of environment ecology figures into the equation in your particular project. No, I love the the fact that you you brought up uh, 
Judith Carney's uh, Black Rice, because not only does she say that slaveholders began to really look to purchase and enslave people from specific regions of West Africa, right, rice-growing regions in particular of modern-day Senegal and Gambia, but she posits that it was particularly the knowledge cultivated by Black women that contributed to the growth of South Carolina's rice economy in the 18th century. And so the the idea that the institution of slavery, the labor of slaves, the, the knowledge of specifically enslaved women contributed to the massive boom that, that occurred in South Carolina around rice, particularly in the low country is fascinating. And in some some way, it does relate to my work, um, looking at the ways in which slave labor was or organized in the colonial period around um, rice cultivation is really important to understanding, for example, the ways in which the slaves economy really be, began to grow in that period as well. And so the, the idea and the reality of slave people working by the task system, being granted perhaps a fair bit of autonomy and then being allowed to use whatever free time that they had to cultivate their own goods, for example, to sell their goods to other slaves, to bring their their goods to market is really important to understanding not just the kind of the environmental history of South Carolina, but really the experiences of enslaved people in contributing to that history as as well. And so there there is a direct relationship in an interesting way to exploring um, the cultivation of rice, for example, and the ways in which rice cultivation allowed for the slaves economy to kind of grow beginning in the colonial period. And of course, one of the things that comes through in what you've just said is sort of restoring aspects of this world that have been erased by the historiography Mm -hmm. in particular. You're showing that, you know, a little bit of uh, free market capitalism involving the participation Mm -hmm. of enslaved people could Mm -hmm. coexist with slavery. And of course, Mm -hmm. in turn, it's possible that slavery could uh, exist alongside capitalism, Mm -hmm. which speaking as historians in 2019 doesn't sound like an outrageous assertion, but there was a time period in uh, U.S. historiography in which there was a real debate as to whether slavery and capitalism were at odds or mm-hmm. actually uh, in symbiosis. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the origins of that debate uh, and how it's unfolded over the past decades? Let's just talk about the the American context, for example. The, the idea that, that American slavery um, was capitalist is not new, but in terms of an idea, it's ebbed and flowed, right? And so really beginning in the nine, 1930s and 40s, actually not in the U.S. context, but in the Caribbean context, these I- ideas were circulating, really starting with uh, historians like C.L.R. James and er- Eric Williams, really positing that in order to understand the, the growth of especially industrial capital and industrial capitalism as a modern e- economic uh, foundation, it's important to then look at the relationship be- between that, that growth and slavery and really the labor of slaves. Um, And so transitioning to the American context, um, for a really long time, really up until the 50s, historians thought that slavery and capitalism could not coexist, right? That slavery, because enslaved people were not wage laborers and because slaveholders, by and large, were not invested in profits, they were invested in these kind of grand ideas of of being a planter, right, of slave slave. 
uh, of really holding slaves as property. That was most Im- important. That uh, that idea uh, held a lot of significance even among historians until the 50s. And it really wasn't until historians began to kind of use new methods to explore kind of large data sets. Um, they, they kind of formed to what they called themselves as cliometricians, historians who were using mathematical and statistical methods to explore and examine kind of large data sets with regards to cotton production and slave production um, that historians began to believe and understand the relationship be, between kind of American economic growth and slavery. And so it really started in the U.S. context in the 50s. Um, but then you, 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 the, the pendulum kind of swung the, the other way with Marxist historians who really understood slavery as a social relationship. And so saying that if slaveholders really valued enslaved people as property, they would not have kind of waged all of this violence or created a system where enslaved people were under so much violence. Um, and so if we then understand that perspective, then really in the 60s and 70s, historians were kind of pushing back on this I- idea of slavery being capitalist, right? The, the idea that slaveholders were not concerned with profits. They were really more concerned with their status in society as being slaveholders. Um, and that perspective kind of was very prevalent up until uh, the 2000s in an interesting way. It was not un- until uh, historians begun, not just historians of slavery, but uh, historians of American history began looking at, well, what was capitalism, <laughs> right? What is capitalism as a system, especially after the crash of 2008, really interrogating in broad swaths? Um, what is this thing called capitalism? How do we understand its history? And it was in those conversations that historians of slavery began to kind of retrace steps of other historians to to think more critically about the ways in which slavery was really at the foundation of American economic growth in the 19th century. So to recap, you know, we had this early critique questioning the idea that slavery was absolutely incompatible with American capitalism, which of course was important because then it kind of shows that the abolition of slavery in the United States was not just about an antiquated mode of economic production disappearing, but mm-hmm. really uh, it was also about people's rights as, as human beings, and that actually this mode could have persisted, persisted under a profitable capitalist system. Mm-hmm. And then you have a second layer of critique, the Marxist critique, which kind of sees slavery more as a like a feudal system. So yes. feudalism predates capitalism, which eventually leads to social and communism, all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it's only more recently that we've gotten to, I guess what you're saying is a more complex picture, understanding yes. the way in which a slavery and capitalism are related. Uh, I'd like to hear you to- talk more about that. Sure. Where's the field now? You can talk from your own work. <laughs> and you can also talk more broadly about what you see going on. Sure, I'll do both. Um, in 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 and so in this this moment, I'll focus on my my own work. And so I see there being kind of two ways of understanding this. Um, the first is from a slaveholder's perspective, which I think, as a historian of slavery, it's always really important to try to get in the mindset of slaveholders. And so particularly in the 1820s and 30s, um, I see slaveholders in South Carolina really grappling with this conundrum, right? The, the idea that they are kind of losing ground to slave 
holders further west in places like Mississippi and Louisiana. And they are trying to kind of fight back against anti-slavery rhetoric that is deeming them as being horrible, violent people. And so on the one hand, they are kind of expressing these grand ideas about them being paternalists, about them caring for their slaves, while at the same time, they are finding ways to further exploit their enslaved labor. Um, and so these two two things coexisted together quite nicely, right? And so in what I do in my book, in my research, is that I found that while slaveholders were saying that they were really afraid of financial insolvency, um, while they were really afraid of losing their investments in slavery and slave labor, at the same time, they were in actually encouraging their slaves to be more profitable. They were encouraging their slaves to trade more. They were encouraging their slaves to make more money on the side. They were even trading with their own slaves while at the the same time not feeding them enough, not giving them enough um, clothing, forcing them to be even more productive. And so again, these two things coexisted quite nicely in a place like South Carolina where slave slaveholders were constantly talking about the, the benefits of allowing their slaves to have a little bit of money. Of course, not enough money so that they could purchase their freedom, but enough money to purchase things that slaveholders were starting to not provide for them, like food and clothing. And so I see this relationship as really being the nexus of this conversation about slavery and capitalism, right? That um, slaveholders could espouse these grand ideas about them being benevolent paternalists while at the same time finding more innovative ways to exploit their slave labor. And that is really kind of at the heart of um, the analysis that I do in my book. So in your work, the slaveholders flagging profits vis-a-vis competitors provides a motivation to sort of try to escape some of the uh, conventional responsibilities of Mm -hmm. upholding a plantation, the sense of like things you need to do Mm -hmm. to make the thing work while not of course, dissolving the exploitative and unequal power relations that are fundamental exactly. to American slavery. Exactly. How does it look from the other side of the equation, from the perspective of enslaved peoples who are participating in this economy? Well, enslaved people, particularly if you look at narratives of runaway slaves, they are very aware of this. I'm thinking about one former slave, one runaway slave whose name was John and Andrew Jackson, um, kind of named after the president. Um, And he talked about the fact that he was enslaved by a slaveholder who would um, who would force slaves to cultivate cotton and pick cotton during the day. And at night he would run this plantation store and he would encourage slaves from other plantations to bring him stolen cotton. And so he would then sell this this cotton to a cotton factor and make all of these these immense profits that he would then put back into purchasing more land and more slaves. Now, in exchange for the still for the stolen cotton, this slaveholder would give enslaved people um, or or sell them um, whiskey. <laughs> but he was undervaluing the value of the cotton that right. he was. Uh, re- uh, receiving from other slaves. And so while he was making all of these profits, enslaved people were sent essentially losing out, uh, risking violence for uh, stealing their master's cotton or ris- risking violence for having liquor. Um, but in this really p- pivotal moment in, in his narrative, Jackson says, but this is the strategy that slaveholders in South Carolina 
in South Carolina use to become rich and wealthy. And so I see that as being kind of the, the crux of, of, of exploring this connection be, uh, between slavery and capitalism. That It does sound a lot like capitalism. <laughs> it does, right? And too, I think if we kind of get outside of the Marxist framework of thinking of capitalism as a set of social relations really grounded in wage labor, then it allows us to explore all of these other sources of kind of capitalism that we would not see otherwise. Um, but at the, the, the same time, I, I have found evidence of slaves being paid for their labor, right? And so what then does does that mean? Perhaps it means that this system was even more exploitative than we thought because they uh, they were still being paid, but still being exploited as much as possible by the people who own them. So if we see an economy in we're emerging in which enslaved people are acting as free market actors within a capitalist system, even though slavery persists, then what happens to slavery within capitalism once slavery is disappears after emancipation after that set of constraints is gone mm-hmm. what is the continuity or transformation that we see that presupposes that the constraints were gone right um and one could claim that they they weren't and i'm think, thinking of two moments the the fact that the 14th amendment did abolish slavery but there is kind of a caveat there with the, the exception of, of if you are imprisoned, right? And so there is this entire new liter- uh, literature that's really interesting on mass incarceration that actually directly relates to slavery and capitalism. The ways in which the prison industrial complex, even in the 21st century, continues to be a capitalist venture, right? Um, there are private prisons that profit off of imprisoning more and more people who are disproportionately black, disproportionately male. And two, the the idea then that exploitation does not disappear once slavery ends in some some way. Exploitation just changes. And so the ways in which we we can look at slavery perhaps changing in a way evolving in a way I think is really interesting and I think the most direct connection to that is the convict lease system that emerges at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th and then the ways in which um, prisons as a system as an economy really begin to emerge in the 20th century as a way to perhaps shore up some of the loose ends that slavery's end kind of left hanging and so I think that there there are really interesting ways. Um, I'm my my next work looks kind of brought more broadly at banking and finance, and um, and I'm really interested in working on a project that looks at the Freedmen's Bank. And the Freedmen's Bank was a financial institution created. In 1863, um, it was uh, kind of put into law in 1865 by Lincoln in the in the month before he was assassinated, and it was a financial institution that was federally chartered that was created to kind of uh, bring former slaves into the yoke of American capitalism. It was really the first savings bank for Black people. It existed for 11 years. There were approximately 61,000 depositors with a combined um, uh, value of about $3 million. And it lasted for about 11 years and it failed dramatically such that it uh, really shaped the ways in which 
African-Americans began to think about their relationships to American financial institutions. And so I see there being kind of a direct connection. One, the the assumption that black people didn't have an understanding of kind of e- economies or finance, which was false. And two, the, the, the fact that these kind of lasting re- uh, relationships have significance now, right? Wealth inequality is an important question because of the legacy of slavery that's not really being interrogated. Um, and so I see these direct connections that, um, that I started to think about through finishing this project that is really pushing me into this, this, this next research agenda once the once this book is done. <laughs> well, that, that's very fascinating research and kind of it speaks to things that people are starting to talk about more today, mm-hmm. just in the way that in the planta- plantation system, there mm-hmm. was a there's a racialized system. Sure. The white landowners are the mm-hmm. owners. Mm-hmm. The enslaved peoples can do all sorts of things, as you said, participate in the market, but they're not the owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in just the same, in a, in a very unequal economy, uh, in the United States in particular, if you look at ownership of, of companies, ownership of institutions, mm-hmm. and you start to see that disparity, mm-hmm. then again, we see those parallels between slavery and capitalism that so many people see. And of course, there's a lot of work all over the world being mm-hmm. written all the time about how modern capitalism <laughs> has many parallels with slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to end our conversation with, I think, the harder question to answer than uh, that comes out of all this debate, which is, I guess, aside from the obvious, how are these two things we talk about as historical phenomena, slavery and capitalism, distinct? How do things look different under capitalism with the elimination of slavery? Oh, see, I don't know if, if I can... I, I see I see them as being so tightly connected that I, I, I really think it would be hard to fully understand the emergence and the persistence of American capitalism without looking at slavery. I think it's really hard to, and historians have done it, but that's why there's been a a modern critique of those types of analyses, because without understanding the massive contributions of enslaved people to really the growth of America economically, I think it's hard to separate the the two. Um, I think that there is something to be to be said about kind of a pernicious way, but I think a really important way slavery is being modern in a way and historians have really thought about what that looks like, right? In order to kind of catapult a country like the US into international prominence, really understanding the ways in which that prominence was grown off of slave labor, I think is really important. So I don't know if you can. I, I, I'm sure people can, but maybe it's my bias as, as a historian of slavery where I see the, the two being so tightly connected um but perhaps not slavery but i wonder if in a way we're we're talking about you know exploitation certainly marx talks about that other theorists of capitalism talk about that um schumpeter talks about that uh, look i said schumpeter because i just re reread his book uh capitalism socialism and democracy but other theorists talk about you know the ways in which um capitalism necessarily evolves and grows as a result of exploitation i think that i see that as being a really important relationship to consider well justine thank you so much for talking to me thank you for having me it's been a pleasure to learn about your research and to talk more about the relationship between the history of slavery and capitalism 
I want to remind our listeners to learn more about the work of Dr. Justine Hill Edwards. You can find uh, information on our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com, as well as a select bibliography of the works of Justine Hill Edwards and other related uh, works to today's conversation. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us and tune in next time on the Autumn History Podcast. <laughs>